Hey everyone, I'm Tish Hayes, one of the librarians at Marine Valley, and I'm really happy to be here with you to welcome um, our Marine Valley Library and Marine Valley Counseling and Career Development Center. We've organized a panel for you. Um, it continues on a conversation we started a couple of weeks ago uh, when three of the Marine Valley counselors talked about some common feelings and concerns that we all might be facing while staying at home during the pandemic. Um, and they shared some of the ways we might take care of our mental health during this time. Today, we're going to dive a little bit deeper and the counselors are going to get into some of the mental health concerns, um, including issues surrounding mental illness, suicide prevention and domestic violence. Hello, everybody, and I want to say thank you to our counselors for joining us today. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your out of your day. Um, it's, it's exciting to have you. My name is Troy Swanson. Um, I'm the library department chair, and um, I'd like to ask our guests to introduce themselves. Troy, Tish, everybody. My name is Christian Locke. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I've actually worked in mental health for about 26 years. I know, how could I be that old, right? Um, but I've worked in a variety of settings, community mental health, patient psychiatry, private practice. And um, really, over the last year, I've been a counselor here at Marine Valley, and I've really enjoyed it. It's been fantastic. Uh, the last few weeks have been weird, admittedly, but it's been a great experience, and I'm glad to be a part of this panel for having me. And I'm Sarah Levi. I'm a, a licensed clinical professional counselor. I have 18 years of experience in the mental health counseling field and specifically crisis intervention, um, suicide prevention, and working with the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, um, community mental health and outpatient services. Um, and I've been here at Moraine Valley for the last year and have some other experience working in school counseling. And I'm also happy to be here. Hi everyone, my name is Sharon Brennan. Um, I'm a licensed professional counselor here at, at the college um, in the counseling department where I've been since um, 2007. Um, I was lucky enough to become full-time and I'm going on my third year of that. So I've really enjoyed being on campus and working with students and I focus a lot of my work um, on campus, um, diving into educating folks about sexual assault and domestic violence. Private, uh, previously to coming to the college, I worked at an area domestic violence agency as a counselor for several years, um, and it's something I'm really passionate about. Um, and so I'm happy to be here and talk about it today. Thanks. Great. Thank you all again um, for joining us. So we're about five weeks into this uh, shelter in place order, at least in Illinois. And I think to just get us started, I'd like to ask, uh, what are you seeing in regards to student mental health right now? Right, if I can take this one to get started. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think it's just really important to start that conversation by saying that there's a lot of normal feelings that are happening. It's a wide uh, variety of different experiences that people are having here. Um, there's really not a template for how to respond to a situation that's so rapidly changed like this did for us. Um, you know, we may even have just a, a wave of different emotions throughout a day, or we could feel good on one day and be feel, you know, impacted on another day. So I think it's just, you know, important to normalize a lot of our responses to this particular situation. Um, but having said that, I think there's some patterns that we've started to, to uncover over these last few weeks. And so I think we could start the discussion on that. I wanted to put up a slide that just shows a few statistics. Um, you know, uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness has put out some information that says that 75% of all mental health conditions begin by the age of 20. So obviously we have a wide age range at Moraine Valley in terms of, of students, but that 18 to 24 age range is still the largest part of the population. And 75% uh, of folks might have uh, develop a mental health issue by 24. One in five young adults will experience a mental health condition during college. That's another really important stat, 20%. Um, and then, you know, a statistic that's more relevant for what we're experiencing right now, the American Psychiatric Association put out a poll, and uh, it turns out that 36% of Americans feel like this pandemic has created a serious impact on their mental health. That's, and actually, I didn't have a chance to update the slide, but yesterday I read a similar poll that was done by the Kaiser Family Foundation, and it was up to 
of people were saying that there's a serious impact to health at this point. Um, so I think those statistics kind of get us in the ballpark of the discussion. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of different levels of reaction that people are having from mild to serious um, or severe, if you want to call it that. And, um, you know, I'll say up front that there's support at all those different levels for folks, you know, and we as a counseling service are here to help you identify what type of resources or what kind of intervention. Uh, you know, much of what we're seeing um, from a mental health perspective um, is to be expected. We're seeing higher levels of anxiety and depressive symptoms. Students, of course. Um, I'm going to throw up another slide that just talks about some of those types of sort of milder symptoms. A person can feel hazy and unfocused, uh, easily distracted, numb at times. Um, certainly motivation can fluctuate <laughs> a great deal. Right now, we're just not certain of what comes next. So that undoubtedly affects our motivation in big ways. And these, so these are some of the more common things. In fact, when I was prepping for this presentation, I was feeling those things. You know, working out of the house as opposed to working in the office on campus, wondering if I have my cognitive acuity available to pull this thing off. Um, so I was feeling it myself. So even as counselors, we're not immune to that. Um, those are sort of the milder ones, but we are seeing sort of a moderate impact in students as well. And something that I've noticed specifically that sort of leads to these moderate level symptoms is sort of grief-like reactions that students are having. When we think of grief, we think of uh, losing a loved one or a close friend. Um, certainly, un unfortunately, that type of thing is happening. In but there's other kinds of grief too. And oftentimes those are a little more difficult to sort of identify. But um, loss of the certainty that we have, loss of the structure and routines that we have, um, those are all really impactful things that can lead to sort of a, a grief-like reaction. Uh, people are having impact of financial loss, uh, job insecurity, food insecurity well. And those kinds of things lead to uh, symptoms that are just more elevated than the mild that we talked about already, talking about loss of hopefulness and direction at times, really yearning for things to return back to normal again. Um, even bargaining, you know, if I could just go back, what could I have done differently so that I'd have a better outcome <laughs> right now? We're bargaining with the universe. What if we could just, if this didn't happen? You know, and in particular, students who are graduating this semester, you know, they, they're, they're missing that last semester on campus, connecting with friends and their peers faculty and staff. And there's also that traditional ceremony that they were looking forward to that is going to look very different than originally. So um, there is those kinds of reactions that are more on the moderate side. And how have you all been seeing the pandemic affect those students who already are struggling with mental illness? That's a, if I could take that one too, that's sort of a natural segue into the, the more serious Type of reactions that we might be seeing in students. Um, you know, if students do have a pre-existing diagnosis, a, a mental health issue that they had going into this pandemic, um, in a lot of cases they do have good support. You know, they have practitioners in the community. They've maybe been working with us as counselors. I don't know how we did it, but somehow we went up online very quickly. We really didn't miss much of a beat in terms of staying connected with our students. Um, but in a lot of cases, there's appropriate supports. People were able to access psychiatrists and practitioners by teleconference almost immediately. And um, so a lot of people have held steady <laughs> that had some mental health issues going on. But there are examples that we've run into of students who, for various reasons, uh, the stress level was so high, it could have been a loss of a job. Previous uh, post-traumatic stress where the sudden security uh, safety kind of triggers sort of mimic a previous experience they might have had that was traumatic in their life. We can have what's called breakthrough symptoms, those folks. And that's really when the stress level exceeds their typical coping skills, or even in some cases, the level of medication they're on, sort of tuned up for the day-to-day -day stuff. And then you have a, something like this create uh, breakthrough symptoms. So a person with depression can have a depressive episode person with uh, bipolar disorder, for instance, could 
um, hypomanic or manic. We're trying to catch that and triage that when people call in, make sure that we're helping them connect with those practitioners or at least or serving as the practitioner for them. Um, well, thank you. So, you know, just if I had a friend or family member who's going through a tough time or I've noticed something has changed in them and I'm, I'm worried about them, um, you know, especially in terms of like uh, maybe suicidal kind of thoughts, uh, what should I do? I'm going to jump in on that question. Um, again, I'm Sarah, and I have a background in working with um, folks who've experienced suicidal ideation. Um, so I can talk about this a little bit. Um, I guess just to put a little bit behind what I'm going to say and, and build off of what Christian said, the types of stressors that folks are experiencing now are ones that are the type of significant stressors that sometimes can lead to somebody having suicidal thoughts. And we're all experiencing this all at the same time to greater or lesser degrees. So job losses, financial stress, maybe losing a loved one or having fear about sickness or, or people becoming sick, just all these unknowns, layers and layers on that is a lot of stress for somebody to manage. Um, and so if you have a friend or a loved one who's somebody who may have experienced suicidal thoughts in the past, or maybe they're experiencing this for the first time, these are sometimes the types of stressors that can trigger some of that. And so I wanted to, to bring this question up so that we can be aware of kind of some of what to look for and have a little bit of a game plan of what to do because it can be stressful when you see someone you care about struggling like this. Um, and even just during normal times, um, suicide is actually the second leading cause of death in the U.S. amongst people ages 10 to 43. So that's a pretty significant statistic. So given that is kind of a starting point, and then we have these layers of stress on top of it. I really want to encourage everybody to be watching out for each other and knowing kind of how to do that. So um, one thing I wanted to share with you all is there's this website called Seize the Awkward. And I really, really like this website. It's user friendly. I think they'll, they'll put up an example of scrolling through it so you can see that. Um, but they have included a lot of different kind of non-threatening ways for how to start a conversation with a friend that you're concerned about to check in on their mental health, check in on if they're having any thoughts like this. Um, they give you some ideas on how to start the conversation. Like, it seems like something's up. You want to talk about what's going on. You're okay. You just don't seem like yourself lately. Um, you don't have to launch right in with kind of these scary or overwhelming questions, but just reach out, check in with someone. It might be via text or like Zoom or phone call now because you're not probably physically with them, but people that you're, it's kind of on your radar and you're worried about, check in with them. Check in with your friends and your family members, make sure they're okay. Um, and then when you are checking in with them and letting them know like, it's okay, you can let me know how you're feeling. I'm not gonna judge you. I just wanna make sure you're all right. Um, it's possible that they might let you know that they're having some thoughts like this. And I wanted to give folks um, some sense of like, if somebody were to respond with certain types of responses, what sorts of ones might kind of flag you as like, oh, I need to follow up on this a little bit more. Um, so I've got a, a slide that just talks about like, if you hear your friend saying something like, you know, my life's unbearable and it's just, it's never going to get better. This is never going to get better. Or um, I wish I was dead or I wish I just wouldn't wake up. Those are statements that uh, kind of indicate like passive suicidal thoughts, maybe. Um, or you might even hear someone saying like, I want to kill myself or I want to die something that's more active, um, or I won't be around much longer, life isn't worth living, then those are the kind of statements where you're like, okay, I, I know that like we're kind of moving into that territory where they're not just feeling depressed or overwhelmed, but like they, they really might not even feel like being alive. And if you hear them say something like that, um, then I'm gonna encourage you to ask a question that feels a little scary. And it's, you know, again, about seizing the awkward here. 
but you can couch it in a way that um, it basically is giving them permission to open up to you and feel less awkward themselves. So if you hear your friends saying any statements like that that you're kind of concerned about, you can, you can be direct and just say, you know, I need to ask, have things gotten so bad that you've even had thoughts about suicide? Is that what we're talking about here? And that feels kind of scary and awkward in some ways to say that, but if the person is not having thoughts about suicide, they're just going to be like, oh, no, it's not anything like that. But if they are having thoughts about suicide, you've now given them permission to, to acknowledge that. Um, and that's a gift that, that you're giving that person in that moment um, and that you're somebody who's willing to talk with them about that, even if they're in that place. Um, so you're going you're to go ahead and ask them that directly. And then, you know, if they do say they've had thoughts like that, you might want to go ahead and ask them, has it gotten so bad you've thought about a plan for suicide? And if they say, you know, yeah, here's what the plan is, or, well, I didn't have thoughts today, but I had some recently, that's when we're going to go ahead and um, kind of pull the lever on getting some help, and I want to make sure that folks know how to go about doing that. Um, so you can just let them know, I'm, I'm really concerned and you deserve to feel better. I'm going to, let's figure this out together. Let's, um, I've got a slide that talks about just kind of some, some encouraging um, statements like, there's some places we can get you some help. Like, let's, let's go check this out together. Basically, you just want to let them know you're, you're there for them. You're going to stick with them. And so some of the options that we have at this point is that you can do a three-way call to one of the crisis mental health centers. Sometimes folks might feel like a little reluctant to call themselves, but you can just be like, I've got a number for a crisis um, center. Why don't we call them together and just get their advice? See what they say. I know they've got some options for how to get help. Um, and then when, when you get on the phone with them, just let the professional know some of what was said and, and say to your friend, is it okay if I share with them some about what we talked about? Should, they'll say yes. And then that, um, that crisis worker is going to basically kind of guide you through next steps of how to get that person the level of help and do like a little bit more intensive assessment, probably by phone of like what the exact risk factors are um, and get them linked up with help or come up with a plan to help keep them safe. Um, there's a, I've got a slide here. There's a few key crisis hotlines that I wanna share. Uh, the, the one that, um, actually let me just pause and say, take a picture of this so it's on your phone, take a screen capture, put it into your saved numbers right now. You never know when you will literally save a life with this or if it's something you might, yourself might need at some point in the future. Um, but go ahead and put the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline in your phone or take a picture. There's also a text option if you're like, the idea of calling a stranger feels like, I do not want to do that. You can use the text option to kind of reach out. So there's, you text home to 741-741 and a uh, licensed counselor will respond to you and interact with that person. And again, kind of guide, guide you through what we need to do. Um, there are two kind of specialty crisis lines, the Trevor Project for LGBTQ folks. If that feels more comfortable, I've put that on the slide. And also there's a trans lifeline. So if you're part of those populations and that would feel more comfortable to you, those are options that are available as well. And all these numbers are still active, even during the COVID shutdown. They are available 24 hours a day. Um, the other resource I wanted to share um, is that our local crisis resource center is Grand Prairie Services. They also have a 24 hour a day hotline and can do phone based assessment and help link you um, to other resources. At this moment, I know that their um, crisis residential center um, is closed, but they do have other options for linking people. If all that feels like too much, just make sure you at least have the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline in your phone and you'll be fine with just that. Um, so 
you're going to do a three-way call with your friend to one of those numbers or text them. They're going to kind of coach you through what to do. But if when you talk with that friend and you ask that question, maybe they say something like, well, you know, I had, I did have thoughts about suicide, but that was like, you know, six months or a year ago. That was a while ago. I had a suicide attempt in the past. I don't feel that way right now, but it's been rough. You know, maybe they just say something like that. Well, so this is the perfect invitation to make a plan for how you can follow up with them and check in with them and continue to just be there for them um, and let them know that you, you've got their back and you're really glad that they shared that with you and, you know, find ways to support each other. Again, there's some um, more ideas and resources on that website. I mentioned seizetheawkward.com. They have some different ideas for even during the coronavirus shutdown, how to support your friends who might be struggling with their mental health. And this is kind of uh, an additional step. I'd say if when you talk with that friend, if they haven't had suicidal thoughts in the last two months, but they are somebody who is talking about struggling with their mental health. Maybe they had some suicidal thoughts before that. Maybe they're not unsafe right now. You may still want to follow up with a quick call or text to either one of the crisis lines or to, um, I've got this on our next slide, one of our um, Marine Valley Community College counselors, just to let them know, you know, I've been communicating with this friend. They're really struggling. Do you have any other advice? It's a good way to kind of, just, you know, maybe you missed something or maybe they have another question that you like, oh, why don't you let them know this or that? And then you can pass that on to that friend and kind of further support them. So I, I'd encourage that. Um, and we also I have on this slide here the information about how to add our counseling services during the shutdown Canvas course, um, where we've got a ton of these resources on there. Um, so it's a way to be able to go back and look at this uh, again later on. That was fantastic. Um, as I'm listening to you talk, um, I'm thinking about what if, you know, it's not a friend that I'm thinking about committing suicide, but it's actually me. Like, what do I do if it's, if I'm the one that I'm concerned about? Right. Well, and I, I wanted to make sure that we talked about this, that topic, because sometimes it's easier to feel like, well, we want to reach out to someone else, but we might feel like this is so private or we're not sure how to talk about it or how to bring this forward if we're the ones that are feeling this way. And the reality is there may be a lot of people who are feeling this way right now. We have a lot going on for us as a community and a society right now. If you're having any thoughts, like you're not sure if you want to wake up the next day, you wish you weren't here, you're actually thinking about suicide in some way, I want you to think about who is that family member or friend that you feel like you might trust the most, that you might be willing to open up to even a little bit and give them a call and just let, just you can start off by just letting them know like it's been rough, you know, just get the conversation rolling a little bit. And if you feel like you can, then, um, let them know, you know, things have gotten so bad that you've even had some thoughts like you wish you weren't here, or you've had thoughts about suicide. And then just ask if you can follow up with them or, you know, how you can kind of engage their support, kind of engage them and have them follow up with you. Ask if they'd be willing to call one of the crisis lines with you if that feels kind of daunting to reach out to this stranger by yourself, you can do a three-way call with them. Um, the, the thing I want to mention is that the key of involving somebody in your life, whether it's a friend, a family member, and a professional, that's like the very best combination for staying safe. So making sure that you know you've got that person you can reach out to if you start to feel unsafe, and somewhere you can get that professional advice who can kind of help you through these murky waters. And I'd say, even if, if you're somebody who's having these kinds of thoughts and you, you can identify a family member or friend that you would feel comfortable talking to about this, you can still, you can call the crisis line anonymously if you want. You can reach out to the text line and just text with someone. And there's somebody who's going to 
try to meet you with where you're at um, and get you what you need at a level that you're comfortable with so that you can stay safe. Thank you, uh, Sarah. Um, you know, it's, you know, we may often during like normal times, um, if there's a mental health crisis or an emergency, you know, go to an emergency room, seek out that help. But I think all of us are a little nervous about going to our local hospitals to not overwhelm them. And also, you know, it's, you know, they're kind of our hot zones for the virus. So I think it's important to ask, you know, should we still use the emergency rooms and are there alternatives in thinking in the context of mental health emergencies? Right. I, th I think normally our kind of default is a worst case scenario. You can always go to the ER and there are social workers there 24 hours a day who can do a crisis mental health assessment with you. Now that is still the case. There are still social workers or counselors at in the ER and they can do those assessments with you. But I'm encouraging folks to kind of think about this in like almost like two levels. If you or, or someone that you're speaking with is either about to attempt suicide, has just had a suicide attempt, or it's that kind of emergency, then don't pass go, call 911 or go to the ER. That's just the same as it normally would be. Um, so if you're about to attempt suicide or you feel like this is coming, it's about to happen, you have any kind of plan, something like that, go to the ER, call 911. That's still the safest option for you. But if it's one of those situations where as you're talking with the person or you're feeling yourself like I'm kind of struggling with some of these thoughts, I feel a little less safe, but you know, this isn't something I'm going to act on right now, but I, I know I'm in trouble. I know I need some help. I don't feel right. There are some different options. So like I had um, talked about, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or the text line. Um, Grand Prairie Services, which is our local um, to where Moraine is, uh, Crisis Intervention Center, Community Crisis Intervention Center continues to be open. Um, what they've encouraged us to do is to go ahead and call ahead and call and speak with one of those counselors. They can assess by phone and then direct if this is a situation where we need to go to the ER or if they can um, set up follow-up and check-in calls with you, link you with other outpatient services. Um, but they can assist with kind of getting you that linkage that you need right away um, kind of in the community. So Grand Prairie Services is, a, is another uh, good one to do. Um, just know that if worst case scenario, you do need to go to the ER or you, you know, need some inpatient hospital treatment, all hospitals are following protocols to try to keep patients as, as um, healthy as possible. So they're going to try to do what they can to make sure that you get the services you need um, and are, are safe. Um, we'll just try to avoid using that unless it's something that's like an emergency um, where somebody's about to attempt suicide or has just attempted suicide. Thank you so much for that. Um, I want to transition the conversation a little bit. Um, we've all been sheltering in place, staying in our homes, a little bit isolated. Um, and we know that in at any time, statistics show that one in four women and one in seven men have experienced physical violence by their intimate partner. So given those statistics, um, how is COVID-19 affecting this conversation of domestic violence and how, what's that impact on, on people in those situations? Okay. Um, thanks, Tish. I think I'll, I'll take this question. Um, you know, just kind of following up with what Christian and uh, Sarah are sharing, uh, we want to talk about impacts on mental health, right? And the trauma of abuse, especially pervasive abuse that you don't get a break from, is tremendous. And so um, we're definitely hearing about it more, um, maybe not on the news as much as I would like because it's reality, but um, I know I'm hearing about it from people and we'll hear more about it. Um, there was an article printed um, by USA Today. It was on April 4th and it was talking about how since the middle of March, um, we've seen a, a, a decrease in crime rates that are being reported, but a 10 to 30% increase in the amount of calls regarding domestic disturbances and domestic violence. So um, people being quarantined and forced really to stay home um, is definitely impacting negatively 
the uh, experience of domestic violence. Not that there's, you know, there's never a good time, but um, when you can't leave and you can't get space, it takes away one of the main self-care measures that you have. So um, I just wanted to mention just some other statistics that we knew before this pandemic, right? Um, more than one in three women and more than one in four men in the United States have experienced rape, physical violence, and are stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Um, and nearly half of all women and men in the United States have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And these statistics are on the National Dom Domestic Violence Hotline website. Um, and that's beforehand. So one in three, one in four, and nearly half of all women and men. Um, so you think those are just the numbers we knew then. I can't really, I really don't want to imagine what, how they might rise um, because it's scary times. Um, and then also, you know, the statistics are speaking directly about intimate partner violence and domestic violence is more than that. Um, it's not just your partner. It's also, it can be between parents. It can be between siblings. Um, it can be somebody who just lives in your home or that you are a roommate with who is the abuser. Um, and it can be another blood relative. So it doesn't have to be someone who even shares your home, but it can be a blood relative. So I think it's important to remember that we're not only talking about somebody that we're in a personal, intimate relationship with. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a, a somebody that we're dating. It can just be somebody in our life in a number of different ways. And um, it's characterized by a pattern. So if, you know, the pattern of emotional, verbal, um, physical, financial, spiritual, every type of abuse you can imagine. It's a pattern that goes on and on. And so with COVID-19, it's a pattern that many people are not getting a break from. Um, the other important thing to keep in mind is that it doesn't discriminate. So it's not, we're not just talking about um, people who are living in a lower socioeconomic status or who don't have resources available. Um, we're not talking about specific genders, specific sexual orientations, specific religions, specific ethnicities, domestic violence, um, sexual violence, they don't discriminate um, worldwide. It happens, it can happen to anyone. Anybody can be a victim and anybody can be the perpetrator. Oftentimes when we think about domestic violence or sexual assault, we imagine a perpetrator looking a certain way and that's not true. Um, so it's important that in this time, especially when we're going to be needing to really keep an eye out for our loved ones or our neighbors or our, our community, um, that we are mindful that domestic violence is a large encompassing term. Um, and at the core of it is this idea of power and control. So um, you might be able to see on your screen, there's an image of the power and control wheel. And this is really um, something that is used as a uh, a general guide so that you can start to understand and recognize what power and control is and how it can be present in different relationships. Um, at the heart of domestic violence is power and control. The reason why a perpetrator is being violent is to gain power and control. And it's done in a number of ways. These are just some of the tactics. They don't all look the same. Um, they don't all get acted out the same. Um, and they don't all have to be present. So when you're looking at the wheel of power and control that's given, and there are many other examples that I encourage you to kind of look up, um, but for the purposes of today, this is the, the most common. Um, you know, it could be one of those tactics and that's enough. It doesn't have to be all. So sometimes when we're trying to gauge whether somebody's in an abusive relationship or not, we might be thinking, oh, well, it's not so bad because it's just this one element, but that one element is domestic violence. So keeping that in mind. Um, and also the different types of abuse. So when we look at the wheel of power and control um, in those spokes, those are not things that are necessarily physical. So we see on the outside of that, we see the sexual and the physical violence coming into play because those are escalation. It all begins at a lower level, which commonly is emotional, psychological abuse. Um, and now during this pandemic, COVID-19, when we are not having the opportunity to leave our home or to go to campus or to visit our instructors or to see our friends, um, we are kind of stuck in this unhealthy and abusive environment. Um, 
So our, our options for space and peace are extremely limited. Um, so it creates a great potential for this escalation to occur. You know, um, in a domestic violence relationship, the escalation may occur over time. And um, that time is dependent on that relationship. Everything is relative, but there is no time and space for these people to be separate or for the dynamics to really cool down. And you have to imagine that given everything that Christian and Sarah were talking about and the heightened um, just delicacy of everybody's mental health during this time, that also includes the, um, the health of everyone else in a household, including a perpetrator, including the person who's being victimized and anyone else. So the ability to maybe cool down isn't quite, um, quite there. The space to cool down isn't quite there. Um, in addition, um, we're seeing a change in the way people are able to seek help. So for example, um, you know, like I mentioned, you can't necessarily just um, go to your friend's house and, and get a break. You can't necessarily come to campus and talk to your counselor. You can't necessarily, um, you can't leave your house and go meet with your therapist, your other support person, visit your family members and such. So um, the not having access to support is, is large. And where there is access, so access video, um, who might be sitting next to the person? You know, it's, it's about safety and um, not being able to even share really what is happening. Um, that's really hard. Um, so COVID-19 is really impacting even a, a person's ability to talk and share. Um, so the other thing I want to mention, too, that something else that's happening is that as a result of COVID, this, this new form of abuse, not new form, but this um, kind of altered form of abuse is this threat of I'm going to infect you or I'm going to, I'm, we're gonna for, be, I'm gonna force you to come out with me and we both are gonna go to the store and if someone is experiencing heightened amount of anxiety and worry about their personal health, that could really be damaging. Um, also, we're seeing um, individuals not being allowed to see their children and holding the pandemic over their head. So whether it's a father or the mother, but one person is saying, nope, you can't see the kids till this is over. And so using the children as a form of abuse is, is big. Um, not having access to money, like you don't need money, we're not going anywhere. Um, so everything is just heightened. And then we add on this layer of if you're somebody who's having to work and maintain your professional life, and it, or if you're a student and having to train your, uh, maintain your academic life, um, another form of abuse is limiting access to Wi-Fi or technology in the home, taking it away, um, creating an environment that's chaotic and um, very hard to be productive in. Um, in addition, disrupting sleep. Um, you know, I, I know you've got, I know you're doing a panel tomorrow and I'm going to keep you up all night or I'm going to, you know, make sure the laptop's not charged or I'm going to hide the cord or, you know, all these really, um, you know, they're like crazy making. It's, it's a type of gaslighting, just all these ways of making somebody question their own health and their sanity and um, playing with psychological games is, is very huge right now. Um, for these individuals. So um, another thing that's helpful, I think, is if because of during this time, because you don't have access to your loved ones to remind you that it's not your fault, that you don't deserve this, that the way you're being treated is what's wrong, that it's not you that's wrong. Um, I thought it'd be helpful to include in this, it's a, a relationship spectrum that the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence published. And what it's, it's articulating, like, what healthy, what unhealthy, and what abusive is. Because right now, when we can't step outside of the home and we can't necessarily talk to our loved ones, maybe we could have a moment, look at something online that explains that this is unhealthy. It reminds you that it's those behaviors and that treatment is what's unhealthy and abusive and that it's not you asking for it, causing it. Um, we never wanna blame the vi victim. We never want to blame the victim. Um, abuse is always the perpetrator's fault. And so just to kind of tie this into the mental health discussion again, um, oftentimes when somebody is abusive, we have a tendency in society to say, oh, they're crazy, or um, it's because they have a mental health condition that this is happening. Um, and really when it's truly domestic violence, it's not about mental health. Mental health isn't causing somebody to be abusive. Um, 
mental health is impacting the person or mental health is being impacted by the person who's being abused for sure. But abuse itself is a choice. It is a choice made to exert power and control over another person to gain power and control. And so if we can use that relationship spectrum, it's a reminder of that. We can say, well, I, I, you know, I can't blame it on this mental health condition because this same person didn't blow off steam at their boss the way they told me they wanted to. They didn't haul off and punch their boss. They didn't punch the neighbor. They didn't um, use terrible um, abusive names and language towards, this, towards their mother, but they chose to do that to me or towards their sister or towards their brother or towards their best friend. So we can articulate then when we have those reminders that this person is choosing to be abusive in these manners towards the one who's being victimized. Um, I think that's really important um, because sometimes domestic, domestic violence and mental health can get mixed up, but we need to remember that mental health isn't to blame for the abuse. It doesn't mean people don't have mental health issues, but they still are making some choices. Um, so please keep that in mind. Um, and then just a couple more things, really important that, um, and this is specific to college students, um, <clears throat> that more than half, so 57% of college students who report experiencing dating violence and abuse said it occurred in college. And then almost the same percentage of students, 58% um, of college students say they don't know what to do to help someone who's a victim of dating violence and dating abuse. And so sadly, it's, the, you know, it's more than half and it's practically the same number of people who are being hurt that also don't know how to get help. And um, COVID-19 is limiting that even more because we're feeling trapped. Um, so it's creating this heightened sense of powerlessness and we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to kind of minimize that and help and encourage and be supportive and um, encourage empowerment instead. Um, they're not around the people that would normally be there to acknowledge and to um, see the character change or to notice a bruise or to see that they look really sleep deprived and they're not taking care of themselves. So um, this pandemic is really, really playing a role there. Uh, yeah, thank you, Sharon, for all of that. That's, um, yeah, it's kind of heavy stuff. And I, it I is. think you um, have addressed some of this, but I just want to, you know, ask how can we help a loved one or a friend that we suspect um, is or that we know is experiencing violence at home or in a relationship? And I think especially um, as you kind of mentioned at this time where we're not with them physically always, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. in place. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Troy. Um, you know, it's hard because when, especially now, there's this heightened sense of urgency around so much. And so especially if we are suspecting that we have a loved one whose mental health is, is, is what's worrying us, or if they're in a violent situation and that we're worried about their safety, um, help in domestic violence does not equal rescue. So safety really is the main focus when, when it comes to helping somebody who is, who's being threatened. Fear is real. Um, they really have lived through awful things already. And if they, if they have been threatened with violence one way or another, they have every reason to believe that that is likely to happen. So we never want to minimize that and we never want to take control away from that person more. Um, so we have to remember that help is help and it's support. It's not rescuing. That person needs to make all those decisions themselves. And you're just going to be there to help them. You can be there to tell them you're concerned. You know, um, as Sarah was mentioning, Christian were mentioning, it's okay to say, I'm worried about you. I'm worried about you. I'm scared. Um, it seems like it's getting worse. Um, can I do anything for you? Um, you know, it, those are good things to say, but not you have to leave. Don't say that. You have to get out of there um, because they, they already are being told what they have to do. So just keep that in mind. Um, so another thing I encourage is if you're worried about a loved one, do some reading yourself because it's, you want to know what education is out there. You don't want to make assumptions about what is available and how things go. Um, the system is tough. Um, the system is tough. And it's, it's even a little harder now because the resources aren't available the way they were. And the resources before were hard enough for some people to access. Um, they're not, they don't always feel inclusive and they don't always feel accessible. So now we're, we're dealing with that limitation even more. So I encourage you do a little reading with some of the websites that we're gonna be putting up here in a minute. Um, poke through, people are, anyone can call a hotline. You know, um, anyone can call a hotline and ask for help or ask questions and anyone can call counseling. 
and I'm going to kind of get to that too. Um, so um, if we were to look at the hotline.org, um, it's the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It provides a lot of information to review specifically about domestic violence. Um, it's also a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week hotline, and the number is 800-799-SAFE, um, or 800-799-7233. Um, so if you're able to call, there's also a chat option. So whether you are the person being abused or you're somebody who wants to know more, you can chat with somebody. And um, because of the website, because safety is the number one concern, there are quick exit options that you can click so that if you are at home and you don't want anyone to see, um, you can click out. I would also encourage you to go back and clear your browsing history. And there's some notes on how to do that as well on the websites, but that is very important. But the chat is good. Um, it does ask you a few questions so that it can um, kind of confirm what's the level of urgency and who's calling or who's asking for help. And then you will be connected to an advocate. Um, the second website that I'd encourage is RAIN. It's the uh, Rape, Abuse, and um, Incest, and <sighs> Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Sorry, we have too many letters altogether. Um, but this website's right because um, it also lists the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It lists several hotlines on that front page um, because anyone can always call, you can call any hotline for any reason and you're gonna be heard and listened to. Um, so keep that in mind. And that's 800-656-HOPE or 800-656-4673. Um, it's important to mention that too, because April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Um, a common form of domestic violence is sexual violence. And that comes in the look of um, coercion, pressure, um, force. And we wanna really be mindful of that. Um, consent is required all the time. Um, consent is mandatory, regardless of your relationship status. And it's um, something that needs to be received every time, all the time, ongoing. So I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that. It's so important. Um, can't be said enough. Um, so I wanted to say, you know, if it's your loved one or your friend, don't be concerned about calling a call a hotline, get some information, um, especially because during this time of COVID, resources, as I mentioned, aren't available the way they once were. It's not, it's not this, it's not as easy to go just, you know, to leave the house and then call the shelter and hope to find one because shelters are running differently. Um, many shelters are closed um, or they are at capacity or having only a limited number of people they can take in because of the pandemic. Some of them have moved their residents to transitional housing or temporary apartments. Some are using hotels and motels and things, but I, I don't wanna take for granted that absolutely everything is available when we need it. And so I encourage calling and seeking support. Um, you can call um, the Marine Valley Counseling Department as well. You know, we're available Monday through Friday during business hours, um, willing to help answer questions, whether it's for you or for a friend. Um, and to kind of guide through that, as well as do research with you. Um, but some ideas for you to do just for your friend also would be frequent calls, and, and this was kind of mentioned, but call. Um, texting is good, but you don't know who's answering the text message, and you don't know who's seeing the text message. So, you know, the old-fashioned phone call can go a long way, and there's something more powerful to hearing a voice than reading a word. And it's just that extra step in action that lets somebody know that they're cared about. Even if it's a 30 second phone call, during this time we all need, we all need reminders about how important we are and how this is temporary and how we're gonna get through and how that even though I can't see somebody I care about, they're still there for me. And so please remember that. Um, listen and offer support and not just sit on the phone and hear them, but really listen. Listen to what they're saying. Um, this is their life. And even if you were ever in a similar situation, that was your situation and this is theirs. Um, be non-judgmental. Um, everything is more difficult than it sounds. And ask questions. Ask if they're okay. Ask if they've been hurt. Ask if they need something. Ask if they're without anything that they need. Ask if there's something they can call or something they can do. Ask. Don't be scared to ask those questions. And this came up when we were talking about suicide. And you really just need to ask tough questions. Um, it can save a life. Um, it can um, be that one thing that you can do when you can't do much else. Um, and then another idea I had is just the idea of sending a card. You know, send a card, a piece of mail that isn't 
a bill or a stressor or something, you know, that's just adding to the, um, the agony of the day, but sending cards or letters, supportive text messages are good. But like I said, remember, you don't know who's reading it, who's responding. Um, I think that's really important because safety is key. Um, but those are just some of the ideas. There's a lot of other resources available, which is why I just say the best thing to do would be to call one of the hotlines um, or call counseling and talk individually so that we can research in the specific area where you're needing help what's available. Thank you so much for that. So much good advice. Um, whew, it's a lot, um, but thank yeah. you. Um, bringing it kind of bigger picture back again. Um, I'm wondering if you all just have some tips that you can share for our students who are struggling right now with depression and anxiety. You know, if I could jump in on that one, um, you know, I, I've had the easier parts of this discussion. And so um, obviously we're here for resources. Everything that Sharon had mentioned is so important. There are great tips and all that. I think um, there's no manual about recommend exactly from a counseling perspective uh, in terms of exact tips. And um, one of the things that I find very helpful in working with students right now is a concept of self-compassion. Um, mm -hmm. There's a, a psychologist named Kristen Neff who's done some amazing work. She literally wrote the book called Self-Compassion. And it just has three parts to it. And, you know, we'll pop a slide up on that that are just really important considerations right now, um, super relevant. Um, the first one is is to lean towards self-kindness versus self-judgment. We are in a place where we're thinking about past, present, and future. We're kind of stuck in a vacuum of thinking right now. And often when we're under stress or anxiety, we are we become self-judgmental. Yeah. We call them automatic negative thoughts or ants. And those really uh, amplify in these kinds of situations where we're stuck. Um, so it's really important to catch yourself or become aware, at least, if you start to really lean towards that, that self-criticism direction. Um, the stress creates biochemicals like cortisol that actually alter our brain chemistry and make it more prominent or uh, more regular to have these negative-oriented thoughts versus uh, typical low-stress situation. The same things like, uh, I'm making the best decisions I can right now. This is a weird situation. You know, leaning towards those self-kindness statements just to counteract um, the tendency towards uh, self-judgment right now. The second part is um, really understanding that we're in this together, common humanity versus feeling isolated. And we are isolated, fortunately. We're at a stay-at-home situation, and um, that's a physical isolation. But we want to guard ourselves from the mental isolation that can cause us and realize that even if we're experiencing financial issues, this is affecting us all. There's, it's not just you. You're not alone in this. And um, viewing and realizing there's a common humanity that's being impacted by this situation can help guard you from, from that mental isolation that starts to take root the longer that we're in our households right now. Um, and then the third piece of self-compassion, according to Dr. Neff, is um, leaning towards mindfulness versus over-identifying with our thoughts and feelings. So what that means is that you know, if we're in a vacuum of our house and we're having these negative thoughts and we're feeling isolated, we might live in those thoughts as though they're facts. Feel bad about yourself, that's a fact. If you missed uh, and made a poor decision, I'm a bad person. Those kinds of things can pop up in this situation. And we don't want to live in those thoughts. We want to be able to take a step back, um, realize that that is natural to think that way given our circumstances. But realize that a lot of those thoughts are impacted by this situation, feel negative about ourselves, those aren't necessarily truths. Those are reactions, stress that we're under. In particular, mindfulness is a variety of different techniques, not just separating from your thoughts, but also breathing exercises, progressive muscle relaxation. Um, you know, there's a great set of apps out there for your phone that you can pull up, and we'll show you a slide on that as well, that are most of them were free when I last checked, but uh, don't burden yourself for figuring out mindfulness on your own. Just go on these apps. They'll walk you through guided imagery, breathing exercises, meditation, and let the app do the work. Because it's really important to realize that we can't necessarily make huge decisions with the information we have. Being present in the present moment 
is is sort of an antidote for that panoramic view that we might you know adopt with this past, present, and future type thought process. We call it time travel. So, um, so again, take a screenshot or take a phone picture of some of those apps and see if you can't pull those up. I'm sure Sharon and Sarah have some ideas too. Yeah, the the tip that I wanted to throw out, which is something that I, I kind of alluded to earlier when I was speaking, is just that nobody. I, I don't want anybody to feel like they have to be in this alone during this time. I, of course, we're going to feel more alone because we're physically isolated. How can we not feel more alone? But there are people around you, friends, family members, maybe not around you physically, but <laughs> out there, um, who want to be there for you. Um, the counselors at Moraine, your professors, your peers from Moraine, they probably want to be there for you too. Um, and so uh, knowing that there's, there's people and there's resources behind you, I want people to come away with that and knowing that. Um, and, and one thing I wanted to point out and share is that we do have some different um, resources through the Counseling Center to try to further support that. Um, I took a, a video capture of uh, uh, what we're trying to do is a one-stop shop to have students know how to access some of these resources, how to connect with support and help Um Teresa, one of our counselors, created this counseling services during the shutdown Canvas course that you can add. And it has, we have a number of different groups that we're offering that you can just drop in and join. Um, one of them is a meditation group that Teresa is offering on Mondays at three um, to work on mindfulness and meditation. You can just show up and join us as a student. We also are offering one for faculty and staff on Fridays. Um, and those are, are posted through that site and have the link for how you can join us. Um, we're also offering, cause you know, um, online learning can be super stressful for people. Like it's a whole nother layer of stuff that you're having to manage. Um, we're offering drop-in groups for kind of how to manage your tasks and time and support people. Um, if you just need some social connection, there's some options that are kind of like just, just to socially connect with someone. We've got some drop-in times and groups. Um, and then other resources, um, things that uh, Christian's referenced, uh, how to link up with outpatient services, even via telehealth, how to link up with um, unemployment or financial or practical resources right now. So um, I wanted to throw all that out there just um, to to join the course and um, poke around and let us know what you need because we really want to be here to support students and, and be here for you. That is so good, Christian, Sarah. So everything I'm going to say is just going to kind of reiterate <laughs> what you said so perfectly. Um, but I keep thinking about during this time, whether we're struggling with our mental health or it's domestic violence or it's a loved one, it's just so fragile. Everything's so fragile. And the importance of self-care was already important. And um, it was already something that we needed to do more of, and now more than ever. And often what I hear is we struggle with taking care of myself. Does that mean I'm being selfish? And I just really want to wipe that and say self-care does not equal selfishness. We all are fragile. We all need to take care of ourselves and do extra little things during these really difficult times. Um, there's no one way to survive. I know I said that earlier. This is temporary. This quarantine is temporary, but there's still no one way to survive. So we've really got to try new things, um, try things that maybe we've thought about trying before and we didn't, try some of the excellent resources that my colleagues have mentioned and put up the information in this video. Um, and if you don't know what else to do, you can call us because we're here. Um, you are not alone. Um, the last thing we want is for anyone to feel isolated in that way, is that even though we are not across the table or the desk, we are across the phone line. And um, that's one of the most important things we want you to take away. So it was so much information, um, a lot of great information, and it's a lot to try and understand, but um, we are here to help you through that. So please feel free, like you can reach out to us and call um, and know that we're here for you. We don't want anyone to be alone. Yes, we want to hear from you. Yes. <laughs> Still here. 
Okay. Well, let me just say, uh, Christian, Sarah, and Sharon, um, thank you so much uh, for your time and expertise with, with this. Um, a lot of great resources. I mean, serious topics and, you know, during serious times. Um, I know you've said it, we said it a lot, but just to reemphasize, you know, we're all here for Moraine Valley. Yeah. Our counseling center really, I mean, everyone's such all-stars. I hope students that are in need feel free um, to reach out. Um, I want to say thank you to Tish for being my mm -hmm. great co-host with this. Helping us organize Thanks everything. Thanks to all of you. <laughs> and um, I just want to remind everyone that the first video from this series is available on the library's YouTube channel and also is linked up out of the counseling resource um, site in Canvas that um, you guys have mentioned. So with that, I'll say goodbye and thank you. Bye. Bye.